Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Change on the Run podcast, where we discuss common change challenges and ways to address them when you're short of time. And I'm your host, Phil Buckley. Today's topic is making training effective during change. All large change initiatives require people to work differently to achieve the desired results. How they think, act, and behave are modified to optimize the benefits of what they are adopting. Informing people on what will be different forms the foundation of learning. Once they are clear on what's new, the team can discuss how these changes will affect how their work will be different in the future, including handoffs between roles. So, how do you train people on the mindsets, routines, and behaviors required to adopt new ways of working effectively? And my guest today is Sarah Patterson. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, Phil. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here with you today. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for being on the show. And Sarah has over 20 years public and private organizational development and talent management experience. She is currently in corporate learning and workforce development, York Region, the regional municipality of York, Ontario. Sarah has a diploma in adult education and development from the University of Toronto, Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, a diploma in business administration for Seneca College, and she's also a certified training development professional by the Institute for Performance and Learning and is change management certified by ProSci. Sarah, what's been your experience in making change training effective? Thank you, Phil. And what a great question to kick us off. I heard something early in my career that had a profound impact on how I approach development and change. That is, you really need to meet people where they are. I think it hit me especially hard as it's something that I unconsciously practice and it was empowering to hear it called out as a skill. Effective change training, from my perspective, really begins at the onset of change initiative. And it requires the ability to truly meet people and the organization where they are to then identify the gaps and to support a successful acclimation into the working environment, whether that be process, new tools or technology or organizational structure. I find in a change environment where there's a timeline and there's a desire to move as quickly as possible, it's that focus on the future state. This is where we need to go. And in doing so, you almost forget where people are and that gap. So the training sometimes just isn't fit for purpose because it's made some assumptions about people and where they are or what they need to learn. If you don't go to the people to find out where they are, especially around the mindsets, just that assumption that people will willingly want to learn anything and go in any direction. Have you found that as well with your different assignments? Absolutely, Phil. There can be so much excitement at the top of a change initiative. We're so excited about what that future state is going to look like. And there's a lot of rallying around people to get that energy up. That can be one of the biggest deterrents for folks if they're not there yet. If there's any resistance towards that change, if maybe they're nervous or scared of what that new way of working might look like. So it's really important to, yes, be excited at an organizational level about where the change will take us, but to really take a step back and stand hip to hip with people to understand where they are today 
so that we know how to move them to that new state of working. Very true. And, and something that comes in my mind, just based on saying that, and this is one of the errors I've made in my career is had created the future state that was so galactic. Everyone will have skills and, you know, the computer generated data and in the spirit of trying to make something cutting edge, people just couldn't relate to it. And, and it, it triggered their fear response, which you said, which it's a lesson I'll never forget. Some people didn't feel that they could make that transition. What do you do in that case when your organization is inspired to create this huge vision that might be too far given where people are now? How do you, how do you negotiate where the vision needs to be that is practical? It's stretch, but it's not too much of a stretch that people just won't even get on the journey. Change can be overwhelming, that's for sure. When we look at the extent of the change, so from where we are today to where we need to be, a huge shift. That can be very overwhelming for folks. Instead of looking at that big holistic picture, which can be, to your point, that galactic, it's unreachable, it's really about breaking it down and focusing on what people actually need in order to perform in the new way. And when we're looking at organizational change or even a process change, we know that there's many people involved, many different types of work activities involved that are going to shift throughout this change. And just focusing, whoever you're speaking with, whatever audience group or whatever leader you're speaking to, is really to bring it down to them. What is relevant for them? What is the information that they need? So instead of focusing on all of the information, which information overload can be very overwhelming, is to really just focus on them and what steps will they need to do differently in order to perform. But then also to reflect back on that big holistic view and to connect people to how they're going to add value to that bigger change. By taking that type of perspective, they, individuals don't need to know every aspect, only the aspects that are relevant to their performance. But most importantly, what value are those folks going to add to that, the overall success of the change initiative? That's such a great point. And whenever a change is launched, there are three things people need to know. One is why are we doing it? The second thing they need to know is how will I be impacted? And, and hopefully what's in it for me? How will it be better for me? But the third one, which is I think so rare in the consideration set of creating training or even just change management is how will your contributions add to getting to the future? So why is your role meaningful? Why is it important? And how will you build the future with us, which is so empowering. And I think it, it almost counteracts that fear that I won't be able to cut it because the organization or the leaders are already saying you have such a critical role in transitioning us. Would you agree? Absolutely. In my experience, and uh, there's been many lessons learned definitely along the way of putting people through the masses versus what it looks like to actually break it down, the time to perform in new ways changes drastically between the two scenarios. I believe it's removing that minutiae of information that 
you know, allows people to focus on what they need to do differently. You've brought up a, what I found is a really important watch out when doing change training is to put everyone in all training programs. So even the individuals, the learners are going, I didn't need to be here. You just wasted three hours of my time because my connection to this part of it is, is so limited. You've broken that trust that will only give you training on what you need. Have you seen that happen? Absolutely. I have seen people self-select uh, for course and also self-select for engagement within the training room. There's been a few times earlier in my career, I walked into a training room as a facilitator to half the room sitting there slumped in their chair, arms crossed, and the body language couldn't have been more clear. They did not want to be there. They were told to be there. I believe that stems from years of just being told, here's the training event you must attend without even hearing why. Why do I need to go? What's in this for me? What's going to be the benefit of me attending? There's so many tips and tricks you can do to engage that buy-in before the classroom event even happens. And we're not going to dance too far here today, but it's really about communication. Communication needs to occur frequently before the training event even happens. So people are aware of what the change is, how it will impact them. And to your point, What's in it for them? By making those small shifts, that is one way you can mitigate or minimize the number of people that are self-selecting. Are there any differences between change training and capability training? Are there any considerations more applicable to the change part versus your skill building that you would typically do for your organization? That's a great question. Yes, I believe there is a difference between the two. And it's one that I didn't notice necessarily early on in the career. But as you gained a little bit more experience, you realize and you can see the motivation behind individuals when they're in the classroom. If I look at some of the leadership development programs that I lead, individuals are keen to join. There's often a wait list and it's exciting to finally get your name called and they're all in, they're hungry. Whereas change, you can see some hungry people in a change classroom, that's for sure. The early adopters, the ones that can see the value behind the change, they're excited by the change and they're excited by this new way of working. However, it's going to help the organization or their clients or their relationships and then there's the two other schools or groups of people that I often see in change training. And that is what I call the fence sitters. They want to be on board. They're passionate about their career. They want to make a good impression and maintain their level of performance. But they have some reservations. They could go either way with the change initiative. I look at that group as opportunity in the classroom. So it's the greatest opportunity as a facilitator to engage that group, to ensure they have the information that they need to move into the new way of working and that they can be heard because often this group, if they have questions, reservations, they need a vehicle to be able to express themselves and to talk things through and to also to hear the perspectives of their peers too. The third group is 
the naysayers. They could be the group with their arms crossed. They could be very quiet, but not to mistake quiet for disengagement either, because we know a lot of the fence sitters can be quiet because they're quietly processing the information and that's okay. They are not generally not participating and they do not engage in that discussion. And that is the group that you want to watch out for in the classroom. Because after the training event, they're typically the ones at the water cooler sharing their thoughts and perspectives afterwards. The three groups I have seen too. Let's start with the naysayers because it is only natural that you will have a group of naysayers. And I found in organizations where there's no naysayers, it's really just a a culture that the naysayers know not to self-identify. They are going to be there. How do you engage naysayers in the classroom, whether it's virtual or in person, to expand their perspective. And it may not be to flip them from a naysayer, but maybe move them along the spectrum a little bit more to the fence sitters. I look for opportunities to engage the naysayers with other groups. So typically what I would do is have a look at the audience profile and look at different ways that I could break the groups up into small working groups and pull a variety, whether it be the early adopters, the fence sitters, and the naysayers, so that there's good representation in each group. I find often that when working in smaller groups, that there is more of a comfort for individuals to speak up, share their opinions. And if it's always the facilitator speaking, there is a risk that we're not going to reach those naysayers. There is a very powerful tool in the classroom that outside of technology and the facilitator, and that, that is the peer group. And by having opportunities for smaller working discussions, if the naysayers are saying something and um, it's not sitting well with the other members of the group, there is a good chance that those other members are going to call the naysayer out and do it in a way that is either relevant to the client experience or the team experience or the organizational experience. It tends to land differently with that naysayer versus if a leader was to say those words or the facilitator at the front of the room was to say those words. Another observation I have coming out of those small working groups is that I'm a facilitator that always asks for the debrief. So coming out of those discussions, so what did you hear? What did you learn? And often one of the other members of that small working group will share some of the concerns in an anonymous way so that we can talk about it as a large group. And it's often through that large group discussion that there's chance for persuasion, there's chance for influence there, and opportunity for that naysayer to hear different perspectives. And often that is what starts to shift the person from where they are into more engagement into the discussion. Another strategy that is, I think, universal in anything that I would facilitate is to look for those golden nuggets coming out of the naysayer. So throughout the session, if you see even a glimmer, whether through conversation or body language, is to really encourage that person to speak out and and flush out what they're thinking, to share their perspective. And often through a little bit of validation, 
you can engage the naysayer by validating what they're saying and leveraging the group to steer them as well to this new way of thinking or the new way of being. We don't know where the naysayer is really coming from. Is it attitude? Is it fear? Is it reputation? We don't know where the naysayer is really coming from. So by at least providing a safe place for the naysayer to express themselves, as the facilitator, you can start to pick up on what's driving that behavior of the naysayer and then how to break it down. Another point you'd mentioned about the peer validation is is critical because, again, the, the facilitator has less credibility, I think, than the peer that works beside the other person. And one thing I found when you know facilitators say, oh, and, and I'll pop into the small groups to listen to what you're doing. And I thought, oh, why would you do that? Because everyone's going to clam up because they're not going to share what they really think or they're less likely to do so. And how about the fence sitters? Like, is it the same process of connecting them with peers and, and having a discussion amongst themselves that tip the balance over to being supporters or, or is there anything different there? That's definitely a great place to start through the peers. I find that the attitudes of the fence sitters are a little different on that premise of meeting people where they are. I find that with the fence sitters, it has more to do with information and relevant examples. I think that's that's really where the fence sitters tend to sit, is that they have maybe just a little bit of confusion or maybe a little bit of misunderstanding or maybe even a, a tiny bit of fear or resistance against the change. But I think with the fence sitters, it's really about time and engagement. So if you know, you're working with that group and you can have that space to allow them to ask their questions and to talk about the real life scenarios, it's really through the discussion that you can watch them shift and you can see the excitement building. It's a lot about reinforcement with that middle group, I find. It's also about providing opportunity for them to test out the new way in a safe space to build confidence with whatever the new state of working might look like. And often time and practice with that group in combination with making sure that there's that open arena for for discussion and questions has been most effective for me in dealing with that type of audience. How do you give people a picture of the future so that they can kick it around and understand what would be different? What makes a real simulation, if you, can, if you can even do one of those? Those relevant examples are key. And if you can build in scenarios where it almost becomes a bit of a storyline for individuals through a change initiative, it tends to demystify everything that's new and different and bring it down into a conversation and something that they can reach and grab onto. The more specific the examples throughout the training event, I find the better for the participants because then it becomes more of a conversation and not a sell. You're telling a story and asking people to react to it. I love it. So when you look at at change training and, and getting people prepared 
to do things differently in the future. There are three aspects of it. One is how we think, which is like, what are our attitudes toward what we're going to be doing and how we work together? The second part that we've just talked about is the process. Who does what, when, and and how is that sequenced? And then the third part is behaviors. How do we treat each other as we're doing it? Is one more difficult than the other, or are they all equally as challenging to get people to move from where they are to where they need to go to? That's a really great question. And I feel like the first group being around the attitudes is definitely, I wouldn't say the most challenging, but it's definitely where I spend my majority of my time. It's about listening. It's about understanding. It's about customizing or supporting individuals with exactly what they need. If you can build into the communication and address some of those attitudes right off the mark, I find that the buy-in is much greater. I can give an example, like earlier in the, in the career, get wind of a change initiative. And, you know, as an organization, we'd be so excited. This new piece of technology was going to help us do things better, faster, smarter, all of those wonderful things. And used to come into the training room and kind of spew out all of those wonderful values and concepts and where we were going to go, it almost fueled the resistance even more from those that weren't of that positive attitude. What I really learned is just going back to just meeting people where they are is that, and I find that the more transparent you can be with people, the more you show them, you can see where they are and that that is okay the greater the buy-in coming into the actual learning event. If you're doing that before the session even begins, they're more open to hearing what you have to say because you've demonstrated you're open to accepting where they are. It's such great advice. And if you validate where people are at, they're more likely to listen. I think it's such a huge lesson, but we haven't talked yet about leaders in the sense of training in in a change environment. We have sponsors of the change. We have supervisors of the people that are going on the change or leaders of those groups. And what's their role in ensuring that the training is effective and it works and it prepares people for change, which is the, the ultimate goal? Their role is integral to the change process. I'll begin with the sponsor. The sponsor's role can make or break a change initiative. It's up to the entire change team to support that sponsor to be able to to show up and be that support and have open ears to be able to listen to exactly how the people are feeling. When people are moving through change, it's almost like they need a beacon to focus on. They need that ray of light to move towards. And it's very difficult to go through any type of change if you're not feeling supported. The role of the sponsor, if they were to do just a few things, it would be to be present, to be truly present and not just behind email or a video of some kind, it's to 
really connect with people. It's to be in front of people. It's to be consistently present throughout the initiative, to be transparent and to communicate exactly what organization knows in that moment, what we can see as far as future state, and to emphasize that they are there with the people through every step of the process. When I look at the leaders, they also play a very key role. Every organization has a culture. And then within each team, there is a separate subculture that always exists. And the team feeds off of the words and actions of the leader. It's really important to engage the leader in a way that is looking at the performance of the team. It's looking at the future state of the team. And it's also very focused on the time it will take to perform in new ways for that team. And when I think about the training and the engagement, I've had many scenarios where people are very engaged, they are participating in the learning, they seem to be adopting the new way, whatever that might be. And then, you know, a few weeks later, you hear some rumblings coming from a certain team and you wonder, how did they get from being excited and seeming to be on board to now either not caring or not demonstrating those, those same skills or, you know, a little bit of backslide or, you know, maybe a little bit of water cooler talk. And typically from my experience, that has a lot to do with the leader of the team. And it's important for leaders not just to talk the talk, but to also walk the walk. Many different scenarios where, where leaders seem to be on board, but then the actual practice on the team doesn't change, leaves team members confused. It leaves them confused because they know this new way of working, yet the demonstration of their leader is telling them to do something different. For the leaders, it's really important to take time with them to identify their needs, to identify where their attitudes are with the change, to be able to address any questions they have, but really to support them with what the new way of working will be. And often for leaders, they they may have their own reservations. They may have their own fears or insecurities around what that new way of working will look like by addressing that, supporting their needs, supporting their development in parallel with what their team members are going through. No, that that is great. And, and curious about what, what's your perspective on leaders attending the training? Because I've been in situations where leaders will stand up and say, this training is absolutely essential, but I'm too busy to attend myself. And I perceive that there's a disconnect there I think a lot of people perceive it that if it's not important for you to know what's being taught and engaging in those conversations and listening to what I have to say as one of your team members, how important is it? I couldn't agree with you more, Phil. Um, And I've actually heard those words and this is important. Why isn't my leader here? And, you know, for individuals, I'll go back to, they, they really need to feel supported in their performance. It's really important for the leader to be able to identify 
what the individual is now doing and how they need to do that so that they can provide meaningful feedback to the employee when they get stuck, when there's ideas that need to be generated, when scenarios come up maybe that are not that wonderful vanilla case that, you know, that works well for everyone. The leader needs to be able to connect with that individual to be able to support them. Without that, what I've seen, and maybe you've seen this as well, is that the participant ends up coming back to the facilitator to ask the questions instead of engaging with the leader. And where as a facilitator, I'm always willing to help someone, especially with their growth and development. Often that's not my conversation to have with the individual. I don't manage their performance and I'm not as close to what every client scenario might look like. What it does is it throws you in the leader role. You're the proxy for the leader, mm-hmm. which is very dangerous. But then if you don't take that role, it might even be worse because you just say, I don't know. And but I know you wouldn't say that, but you know, I don't know. Talk to your leader. And, and that's not very empowering. The spirit of change on the run, if you only had time to do one action to make training during change effective. So it's the one thing that would give you 80% of the results and 20% of the time you've just been flown in. This is something that you have to manage. You can only do one thing because you don't have a lot of time. What would that be? I would say where I am very particular around how I set myself up for training through needs assessment and the training plan and sometimes even building the business case for, for why that training needs to exist. I tend to be fairly regimented in those spaces, but without the time, I would abandon most of that. Against my own personal beliefs, I would abandon that and go back to, it's really about meeting people where they are. And if I could do one thing, it would really be to bring anyone that's impacted by the change into the room, whether that be all at once or broken down by different needs and different audience profiles. Through change, people need to be heard. They need to know what will be expected of them, what's expected today, and how that will change or look different in the new style of working. And if we bring them in, have those discussions, identify where they are as far as needs, and that could be from a development perspective, it could be from an attitude perspective, it could be from a knowledge perspective, That is where I would put my energy, just to make sure that the people are comfortable, the people have the information, and they know what is going to be expected of them. Everyone at the end of the day, I believe the performance matters to them. I believe it's one of the the biggest motivations for employees is how their work connects to the bigger, broader picture for the organization or the team. So if you can bring them together and you can articulate that and create an open forum for questions and answers and have people walking out feeling good about the change and feeling supported and that they have an avenue to speak up, that's where I would invest my time. Thank you, Sarah. That seems like an overarching banner for the goal of training and change and for any other types of needs too, that people are supported and they know that there is that avenue for feedback. Thank you so much. And just as we close off the show, is there an insight or a consideration or a point that you'd like to share with the listeners just as a leave off of something to remember from our conversation today? As my one key takeaway would be that 
no two change initiatives are ever the same. Where there are processes out there that provide best practice around change management and how to move people through change, there's great information out there. But know that within a change initiative, there isn't one textbook that's going to help you. And I think it's really about taking a step back, really knowing the organization or the team that you're supporting and looking at them as humans, as individual humans and identifying what will it take to move those people through. And for every change initiative, that will look different. And sometimes it's about relying on your instincts, on your gut instincts. And often it's through conversation and connecting with others that we're going to learn what is meaningful for this particular initiative. And if you anchor on that, chances are it's going to lead you down a path of success. So true. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for being on the show. And how can people get in contact with you? Well, you can certainly find me on LinkedIn under Sarah Patterson, as well as in the I4PL group, Institute for Performance and Learning. I am open and available for connection through our network as well. Thanks so much, Sarah, for being on the podcast and sharing all your expertise. I really appreciate you being on the show. No, thank you, Phil. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. Such a wonderful conversation about something that I know we are both highly passionate about. And I've really enjoyed my time. So thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. That was tremendous. And also to the listeners, thank you so much for listening as well. And if you're interested in learning more about the podcast topics, check out Change on the Run, the book and the audiobook at changeontherun.com or your favorite bookseller. And until the next time, I wish you all the best as you continue to lead change.